Hey everybody, Matthew here from MiniWarGaming.com and welcome to another episode of the Wargaming Game Master. I've got Steve again. Hello. To be on it because I had nobody else. Awesome. Awesome. It makes you feel good. Yeah. I'm just joking. We love Steve. <laughs> Steve is actually featured in most of our narrative campaigns, so you are going to see a lot of him because he will be able to answer the questions just like I can, but from the totally the opposite. Other side of the table. Yeah, yeah which I yeah. think is a very valuable um, point of view because us games masters, or game masters, sorry, there's no S there for some reason, us game masters um, sometimes forget what it can look like from the other point of view. I know that I appreciate the fact that uh, as much as I... We play D&D every week, every Tuesday, and we rotate who's the DM. I'm the DM for Tomb of Annihilation, and then Luca is a DM for Curse of Strahd. And I definitely enjoy DMing more than playing, but I have to say that being a player has been invaluable to me as a DM because it's allowed me to see it from the other point of view. And so that really makes a difference. So yeah. I think it's important that Steve is here to share his thoughts too, but some of the questions that we'll be asking, even though he hasn't really done much game mastering. Probably none. None? No, you've done a little bit. You did the Mordheim campaign. Well, see, the thing about that one, Mordheim is one of those games where there's no there's no real need for a game master. Right. The the, the, the setting and the, 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 um, the rule set... Does all that work for you? Yes. And if you, were you playing it with like a game master list then? Yeah. So you were just more the organizer then? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The so booker. I, the booker. Yeah, make sure he's there. Yeah. Yeah, I guess yeah the organizer. Yeah, yeah that's, right. that's when we had talked about that. The game master run narrative campaigns versus the ones that are not run by a game master. They both have their advantages. Um, obviously, the ones without game masters are easier to run. And the ones with Game Masters can have some interesting variety to them because you have a neutral or semi-neutral third party that can make things different. I think it's more fun with a Game Master. For the players, yes. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah. And for the Game Master, too. But sometimes I know I just like to play a campaign where there is none, where I just get to play and get to just follow the rules. And if something goes wonky, it's not my fault because I didn't write the rules. You just did one of those recently, correct? Uh, no. I, I kind of did a hybrid one. I did the Dragon Tooth Labyrinth for Age of Sigmar. And that one, I was the game master, but I kind of wrote a system that would mostly run it for me. And then I just had to make minor changes along the way. So okay. I really enjoyed that because it relieved a lot of the pressures that I normally have and allowed me just to have a lot of fun and building lists and then playing the games. But I still had to be careful, uh, especially once I brought in the Iron Jaws with their new rules that I had to make sure I maintained balance, which is something that we want to talk about. Anyway, so we have a few things to discuss on the show. Uh, my plan for the format of today's episode is to cover a topic for a little bit. And that topic is going to have something to do with creating narrative campaigns. We've already had, this is our fifth episode, and we've already had two episodes that have been specifically about how to create a narrative campaign. We had episode number two, which was how to start, like where to start. And then episode four I had with Miles, who is the writer of a lot of our narrative campaigns. And we talked about brewing a story. And so there's a lot of other things we can talk about when it comes to creating your own narrative campaigns, a lot of which you guys have asked the questions about. And so I want to address those. Today, I want to address at least one topic, which is a question from, I think, I, I think it's Jens Colmer, unless it's like Jens Colmer or something like that, J-E-N-S on Facebook. And uh, they said... Uh, for in their post, maybe how you go from idea to the games. So where do you get your ideas? How do you come up with the rules? Which I don't know if we're going to talk about that fully in this episode. Do you play test the rules or adjust them as you go? How do you play test? Do you tailor your ideas for YouTube? Or doesn't that affect the creative process? So I'd like to talk about those two parts of Jens. Jens? I'm, I'm sorry if I'm not saying it right. Um our question or comments which is where do we get the ideas and second off do we how does youtube how does making them for video content influence what we decide to do all right yeah we're gonna start there now the first part of that was it where do you come up with your ideas where do you get your ideas where do you get your ideas so if you were having to come up with your own narrative campaign steve where Ooh. would you where would you source inspiration for your ideas okay wow that's difficult so you well depending on what game system you're playing in let's just uh let's pick one that's probably the most popular for us Warhammer 40,000 um 
I'm just going to think of a really cool setting or a little snippet of a story that I want to expand upon. Such as? Like, what, what comes to mind? Like, right on... I'm going to put you on the spot. Oh, so you're, okay. you're going to so lean if, and get nice and close yeah, to the microphone. So if I had to, uh, like, immediately do something right now... Create uh, a 40-kid yeah, campaign. you got to start filming tomorrow. I, and I'm, I'm, I have to get, after doing 15 minutes, the first thing that pops in my mind is the whole story of Cypher, about a lone character with a mysterious past. We don't really know what his goals are as he travels across the galaxy. I'd uh, change that up and steal from that. Right. Maybe not about Cypher, but about No, exactly. Else. Not about Cypher at all. But like I, that's, a really, that's one of my favorite Warmer 40,000 stories. I would use that and trade my own thing to it. Yeah. Now, we talked a lot about brewing your story with Miles in our last episode. And by the way, I apologize for missing last week. We just wasn't able to get it done. Uh, so I, I'm sure we'll be repeating ourselves a little bit there. But I want to focus more on the beginning part of where the idea. I know that we didn't discuss that a lot with Miles, and I, and I wanted to. Um, and so, so yeah, so that you have to realize that it doesn't matter if it's Warhammer 40,000. It doesn't have to matter if it's Age of Sigmar, Dungeons and Dragons, writing your own novel or anything else. It's the same question, really. Where do you come up with the ideas? And they come up, they come from everywhere. I find for me that it's best if they're as organic as possible, meaning that usually I already have the idea before I have to do the narrative campaign. In other words, I will be, I know like, for example, I was uh, out for a walk in one of the mornings a couple weeks ago and I was listening to music while I was walking. And I think I was listening to the soundtrack from Mad Max. And as I was listening to it, it gave me a really cool idea for a story. Not 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 Gorkamorka. Not not, not, not vehicle combat. It was I can't remember which which of the tracks I was listening to, but I all of a sudden felt like I was behind enemy lines and it made me want to do a Warhammer 40k narrative campaign where you're in a you're basically it's a small group of guardsmen who have crashed their Valkyrie on an infested world of yeah. Fill in the blank, Tyranids, Nurgle, heck, it could even just be some other Xeno species that we'd, we've never really dealt with, or it could be Drakari, although it, for me it was important that they could be a little more faceless, which is where it'd be like, it'd be like a zombie infested or Tyranid infested or something like that, where it's not about going off against different NPCs, it's about defeating your environment. And they hear some sort of broadcast about a safe... Like, so I'm picturing that as I as this brood in my head, I'm like, okay, so they have to get somewhere. Where do they have to get? Well, they would have maybe heard a broadcast over their Vox casters of a safe evacuation spot. I'm like, so that means that people are evacuated. So let's say that this is a Tyranid infestation and they've won. And so we're now at that end stage where the few remaining survivors are trying to get off. And they need to get there. And for whatever reason, their Vox casters were broken on the way down so they could only receive signals. So that could kind of create a really interesting dynamic as you're going through the story and receiving different signals but unable to communicate. And so it kind of guides the path. And as this brood in my head, I'm like, ooh. And I want the player to have to choose different paths that will create moral dilemmas and also just more practical dilemmas like... This way is faster, but mm. we're running out of food. And so if we go this way, we think there's a supply depot that we can raid. Or maybe oh, that. or maybe they'd hear a broadcast from some other survivors who are trapped nearby. But they could ignore that. And you know, we could talk about the moral implications of that, how they're not gonna help them even though they could. But there's also some practical implications, like hey, if they find survivors, maybe they can join their party and strengthen it. But they don't Just know. Like, maybe when they get there, it's too late, they're all dead. Maybe the broadcast was on repeat and they find it. There's so many cool twists. And all of a sudden I wanted to do this narrative campaign. So now I have this, and this is before I had to make one. We have, we actually are ahead of ourselves on filming 40K narrative campaigns right now. So I don't need to make <laughs> one for a while, but I want to make it now. And I thought, well, we need an Age of Sigmar one. Can I adapt that for Age of Sigmar? I'm like, yes, but not really. It's more a sci-fi trope. Yeah, it like, is. Oh, yeah, you could totally you do it. You can rom-gate it, you it but yeah. You could totally do it. You're... You 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 know you get stranded. You were in a carriage on Overlordship, which crashed, and or whatever. And now you have to get through the whatever infested area of Grotz or whatever. But to me, it just didn't quite have the same feel. I needed it to be. But and and, and anybody listening to this is probably like, oh, I've seen a movie about that. Oh yeah. Well, or sure. I've read a book about that, and sure. yet I still want to do it. I don't feel like I'm being so derivative that I can't kind of put my own spin to it, put it in our setting, and make it interesting. Do you? 
do you know uh, why you had that idea? What what made the idea pop in your head? Where did the idea uh, come from? Just the song. I actually rethink so because you. Oh actually, no no no! I mean that's where it started. I don't know what. Well, okay, there was that. actually a mission in our the last campaign that we recorded. I'm pretty sure that episode has gone out by now, uh, which basically had that. I think it was mission two. Mission might have been Shattered mission Imperium, two. Yeah, mm-hmm. where there was a crash of Valkyrie, and it was the that day at the end of the days when you start talking about that idea. Okay, cool. Now, I don't know if you so didn't even know I had that idea I don't, before. Exactly. So I don't know if your walk came before that. and then No, no, the walk was after. Okay, so this that, is just like that's three the weeks thing. Ago. So all, all of these ideas all come from, for the most part, it's always in, like on the, in the bathroom or in the shower or as a walk where you for have, me, a, yeah. have, a, have a, I think a lot of people are. Yeah. But yeah, for you. Um, I know we talk about that a lot, actually. But uh, but it, it's, it's all about uh, something you've experienced previously or an idea you had previously, and it sort of comes together with a new idea popped in your head, and that's where they're, they're, always, they're always coming from something. Exactly. And so you have to kind of pay attention to that. And, and instead of trying to force an idea, essentially yeah. you have to have an idea pop in your head, and you have to get an excitement brewing just within you, especially if you're going to be the games master. Nobody else is going to be excited if you are not. Very true. Why would you do something that you're not? This is a game. In the end, yes, we do it for a living. I need to come up with ideas for narrative campaigns because that's how we make a living. But you don't. So if you need to, if you need to be inspired, you need to want to do it. You need to have players who want to do it. And so these ideas need to be that kind of organic. And they can, they can come from anywhere. From the player side of it, if the game master isn't excited about a certain part of um, the story or a certain part of a mission you're doing, the player won't be. At all. You can feel it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I can tell when Matthew starts to feel like something's not working or it's not going the way he wanted. You can really tell. If he he starts losing any kind of interest or excitement, you can immediately feel it in the gameplay. Yeah. And that's that's the burden of the Game Master. It's also the fun. The Game Master gets to manipulate all that kind of stuff. That's the thing. You can get get good at adapting to that. Yeah. Changing on the fly. That's kind of a, a strong skill to develop. And, and you only do it by you know doing a bunch of games actually. Yeah, it, it, nothing, nothing's going to help you except experience, just kind of doing it. And so, and I, I've said this before, and I'll say it again because I think it's an important thing to say. Once I get an idea, I will say it in front of everybody else, and you can tell immediately. You don't have to figure it out <laughs> if you're going to bother to do it, because you can see if there's people who are like, "Oh, that sounds so cool." Like, as I said, the idea that I was doing right now, is that something that you would... And, oh, and, absolutely. And it's okay, I, it's okay no, if you say no. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, I, have, I, I don't know if I, I don't want to detract you, but I, I want to stay on that for a second. Have you ever brought an idea to a room where there wasn't... The, 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 the energy seemed fake or it wasn't there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, I ever tried to bring that back at another time? I've usually, moved, I've usually moved on by then. See, the thing, the, thing. Is, the thing is, I churn through ideas yeah. faster yeah, than do. we make narrative campaigns. And so, for example, this idea that I just had, if I don't do it within the next month, it won't happen. I'm not going to care. Yeah. I'm going to have a new idea that I'll care more about, and I'll do that one instead. And I, I just have more ideas, and I have time to make campaigns, so that's okay. Because it's like D&D characters. You make a whole bunch of good ones, but you don't care about, you don't care about the first one, you're not even on the tenth one. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, you just have to kind of be where you're at in the moment, which, oh. is, which, is, which is important. And it's also going to be difficult, especially as you're filming or, in your case, as you're playing, is maintaining that interest, which can easily, because, you know, you have a vision in your mind. It's not going to work out that way. It's not going to work out exactly the way you're, you're picturing it. Uh, it's going to work. And especially because once you put miniatures on the table, it has a different feel to it. Like everything I just described would be better shown in a book or a movie or a TV show because they can dramatize it better they can do all that, whereas the miniatures on the table don't quite have the same dramatic effect as, say, a role-playing game. But that doesn't mean it's not going to be fun and that's not a good idea. It just means you have to kind of get used to how your ideas translate to the table, which ideas will translate to the table, and which ones don't really translate to the table. And once again, there's not going to be a, a, a perfect guide to knowing your ideas are good for the tabletop. There might be some basic things, but overall, it's just kind of an experience. You have to do it, and you get used to what works and what well, doesn't. Well, a good idea with one person may be a terrible idea for a different person. Yes. Like, I, mean, I think you know what I'm saying. Let me say that better. Uh, you may have a fantastic idea that will work with a certain group of people or a certain person that doesn't work as well with a different group or a different person. So you have to really know the, person, the people you're playing with and how they're going to react to it. There was a comment that you just made me think about. So on YouTube, El Rohir Guitar 
left a comment um, a little while ago. And it wasn't so much a question as it was kind of agreeing with some of the stuff that we had. I think it's from episode one, actually. He says, I've been a dungeon master for Dungeons and Dragons for about 45 years. Wow. You're dating yourself there. <laughs> I hope that one day I can say the same thing. Right now, I can only really say for like 20 some odd years. One of the key elements for that and for narrative miniatures games is to know your players. Yeah. Some players love story. Some do not. Some players can take defeat. Some cannot. Luca. Some players can come up with terrific ideas. Who can't take defeat? Luca. Oh, really? He has a a hard time with it. Especially, and you know what's good about that, though? If you actually watch watch the Dragon Tooth Labyrinth, you see him get super frustrated a couple times. And he won plenty. He won more games. Spoiler alert, he won more missions than he lost. But when he lost, because I had a high stake in every mission, I'm like, if you win this mission, you get this object. It's a really cool relic that upgrades. And so when he lost that mission, and that wasn't just one, so I'm not giving away which one it was, he got so upset. Okay, it was but, but awesome. so I, I haven't I haven't spoken to Luke about this. I'm not going to speak for him, but just I'm going to put this out there because I know I can be this way. Um, when you lose and you're upset, it meant you were invested. Exactly, that's a good thing. It's a good thing as long as you're not as long as you're upset for the right reason. He was upset because he really wanted the thing that he would have got if he won. He wasn't upset because I gave him an unfair scenario. That see that that would just be annoying, right? It's like uh, here's the scenario, here's the prize, and by the way, it's impossible to win. Yeah, but you can adjust in the fly, whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he wasn't upset like by that. We, he was upset because he. You don't have anything. Nope. <laughs> I didn't say, "Hey Siri, my phone likes to talk to me randomly sometimes." Sorry. He was upset because generally he, he wanted it, the item. He wanted the item, and I think the dice just kind of killed him, and which is going to happen. That's why that's the funness of these is that you just you can't anticipate what's going to happen because of dice. Um, and so th- I love that though. So let, let me finish this before we keep talking. Uh, some players can take defeat, some cannot. Some players can come up with terrific ideas that you had not even considered. That is definitely true. I remember an episode back of Space Hulk Death Watch where Quirk saw Face Stomp coming at him and he's like, Can I plant a melt a bomb? Because he was about to go into this, this overpass and his guys were armed with melt bombs. He's like, I want to plant melt bombs to collapse the thing onto him. And so I'm like, oh, cool. All right, let's try that. And so on the fly, I came up with some simple rules. It wasn't too hard because, you know, there's already rules for destroying buildings and vehicles. So I just kind of implemented that. And so he still had to make a series of rolls and he had to time it. So he plants it, face stomp is coming, which is he would take out his his guys because they were they were just outclassed. And he backs up and he goes under. He's like, okay, trigger. And I let him have a remote trigger for his melt bombs, even though technically they don't have that, but whatever. Um, and he had to make the rolls and he made all the rolls and then it collapsed and he got to roll how much damage it did and it took him out. And I got to do some cool stuff with the terrain because I actually did like a before and after where I had all the terrain on top of them and all this rubble. And there was even an after credit scene where he like like faced off a bus out of the, the, the debris yeah. all super angry because he wasn't actually dead. And that was cool. I don't think of stuff like that. I don't know. Like he, Quirk was always pretty he good. Always like, doing that. He was always good at like outside the box type stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Constantly. And I had to be on my toes. That never would be even an option for me. Yeah, and some players are like that. You just some players like when we play Dungeons and Dragons. So I, I've heard like I've I've read so many forum posts and Reddit topics about dungeon masters having hard times with their players. One of the things they talk about is players just not taking a hint and derailing the campaign. I've never had that problem with you guys. I I try because to. I I just I just drop something in front of you. You're like I guess that's what we've got to do now. I've actually got to be careful not to make it look too much like. Like, that's exactly what you have to do and re- make them realize, oh, you do have options. <laughs> you can do other stuff. So, yeah, so some players come up with terrific ideas. Some follow directions. The same game can be great for one group of players while failing for another. Also, and here's an interesting point, I never had to worry about how an audience would view my games. Right. Like Matt has to. So that kind of goes down to what um, that's a, Jens, that's a or Jens had said. How does creating it for YouTube affect the whole process? So and we'll talk maybe a bit about that, too. So Elroy here, Guitar, those are really good points, and I totally agree. I, of course, our experience is a little different. I have a pick of employees who, once they're in it, they're in it. I don't have to worry about them leaving. Dropping, I, But I do still have to worry about them losing interest. There's nothing worse than getting mid-campaign, and either the dungeon master or the player has become a little less enthusiastic about it. It becomes much more of a chore, and that's happened plenty of times. Yeah. Uh, where mid-campaign is just becomes more of a job than doing it for fun. And if you're doing that with your friends, you can just stop. 
But us, we got to finish it and show enthusiasm for it, which can be tricky. But I mean, there's a number of reasons why we don't get into all of them. But but I mean, that, that is usually sorry. I almost rephrase that. That has never been an actual, in my opinion, a problem for us because you just do something different. Like not different. You just you know, you you'll, you'll mess with me more. You'll change something up. Um, it's it's usually um, when something gets a little stagnant in the yeah. the story or the or the missions where. If the entire campaigns end up being go here, go here, go here, go here, go here, go here, now go here, now go here, then go there, um, then that happens. But the, <clears throat> having having a games master aware of that problem who will change it up, it's it's going to make that problem be non-existent or go away when it does pop up. It's not, not that it's not that big a deal. We lost our video. Sorry for those watching on YouTube. We lost our video there for a little while, but uh, it's back. But you still got to hear lovely voices. So continue. Yeah. So just to continue what I was saying. Um, if I feel like it is going in a way where I'm starting to lose it, and I don't feel that my games master, or you in particular, are picking up on it, picking up on it, or are going to correct the ship or write the ship as it were, uh, I'll just take um, bigger risks, um, just do things I would normally do, just be far more reckless, and then you'll have to adjust to that. It's, it's also up, it's, right? it's also it's it's the player getting very accustomed to his games master. Yeah. After many many games, yeah, I know how to. I know how to not not get in your head is not the right thing to say. Um, I know how to um, l- communicate to you that like this is this part of thing isn't working for me. I'm going to just be a little more risky. It's a mutual experience, just like if you're playing role playing games. And this, see, I think the one of the reasons that I love narrative wargaming so much is because I love role playing games so much. I would actually, I, I've said it before. I like, I think I like role playing more than I like tabletop miniature wargaming. Um, but and so that kind of translates over to when I'm playing miniature wargaming. Of course, I love a good throwdown match, no problem. That's a lot of fun. But long run, this is what's actually fun for me. And so it's important, just like if you're playing role playing games, that yeah, you have that communication uh, between the player and the GM as well. So okay, so basically we've been talking, and we've kind of gone on a few tangents about where we get our ideas from. Um, another suggestion I would give for where to get your ideas from is to be reading the source material of whatever game it is that you're playing. There are plenty, plenty of ideas in there, and it can come just from a single sentence or a single paragraph. You don't need something that's all fleshed out. For example, the World Engine narrative campaign we did <laughs> came from one paragraph in the Necron Codex from 5th or 6th edition which described a world engine, which is just basically a tomb world that turned on enormous engines and flew around their planet, which doesn't make any sense, but I loved it. Uh, became a big Death Star. And didn't uh, very shortly after that campaign or during that campaign, either a novel or campaign book came out about a world engine? <laughs> no. It was a novel, It right? was a novel. It wasn't shortly after. It was like a year later. It was a year later? Yeah. And uh, it was called The World Engine. Yeah. And the name of our campaign was The World, world engine. engine. And people thought that they were copying from us, which, <laughs> which, you know, it makes sense because I got it from one paragraph of the book. Like the world engines were not this hugely developed thing in the Necron Codex. I saw one thing. And because it's such a trope, it was easy for me to to, to figure out the rest. And so when they come out with a book, I, I didn't even read the book. I have no idea if it's anything like the campaign. It doesn't even matter because it wasn't my original idea. I just got the idea from the codex. So there's tons of ideas in your codexes. Tons of ideas in your battle tomes just waiting to be found. So read the lore sections. Make them your own. And you should be able to find it. Heck, it might even come in the description of something. Um, and not even the lore aspect, mm. but like you're reading about gene stealers and you get that little paragraph blurb, right, on a data sheet mm. or something. And that might right there in and of itself be like, oh, that's cool. I like that idea. Let's turn that into an entire the story. The gene stealer calls endless ideas oh, for yeah. campaigns. They're you easy. could do campaign after campaign after campaign with them. They're so easy because they're your cult thing, right? Yeah. They're the, they, you know, they're infesting your cities and they're infesting your neighborhoods and your sewers. And they, might, they, they a, might be your neighbor. We can't do it now, but I'd love to do a campaign one day where I have a team of guys trying to sort out a Gene Sir cult uprising. And then at the end of the campaign, I found half my guys were part of the cult. <laughs> yeah, it, there, be, it'd be interesting to try to figure that out, right? Because once again, the more you delve into those kind of mechanics, the more a role-playing game is more suitable. But you kind of want to merge them. Like there, there are a few questions that I've gotten are, have been like, how do you do cross system campaigns? We haven't really done much of those. We're going to be doing those in the future with the, the big campaign in January, where it's like, you're playing kill team, 40 mm. K battlefield Gothic, that kind of stuff. But it, it's, it's really what it comes down to. What I would like to do is a cross 
um, medium campaign. Interesting. Is that the right word? I think where, you know where you're going. Where basically you play a role-playing game. Yeah. Like Dark Heresy or... Um, we talked about this before. Brain. Brain. What's the current 40k RPG? Wrath and Glory. Wrath, Wrath and Glory. Jeez, I, <laughs> we just played it. I just, it just escaped me. I'm sorry. Yeah, where you play like Wrath and Glory as, let's say, a group of Space Marines or Inquisition or We cult. almost had Matthew doing an episode of Yogvir and Tor in, in, in the D&D format. I think that would be fun. We almost had it. I think it would be fun. Well, the Age of Sigmar role-playing game. It was supposed to be out at that time. Yeah, it's supposed to have been out for a while, and yeah. it's been delayed because they, they, now they have the 40K one to do. They're doing Wrath and Glory. This is Cubicle 7. And um, and they're also doing the Lord of the Rings one and the Warhammer Fantasy one, so oh, they wow. got their plate full. They got a lot. Um, and they've already been doing, yeah, the, for, the Fantasy one has come out, and I have to get the 40K one going again. I can't wait for the Age of Sigmar one, though. I really want to try it. I I just want RPG shows to be a thing on mini wargaming. So if you want that to be a thing, speak up. All right, because I need a lot of support in order to make that happen. They're they're the most that I have. Oh, it's ridiculous, but they're also so expensive to make. Yeah, and the few that we did do <laughs> didn't really get the viewership that I was hoping for. And I get it. There's a lot of them out there right now, and they're long format. They're a lot different. But once again, we're on a tangent. Now I'll go back a second. I don't know if you fully, maybe you covered everything you want to say, but did you finish everything? All your thoughts on uh, games mastering for an audience? That's what I want to talk about next. Okay. So there's that question. Do you tailor your ideas for YouTube or does that affect the creative process? Whereas uh, Eller here Guitar had said, I've never had to worry about how an audience would view my games like Matt has to. Let me tell you, 110,000%, it does affect what I do. For example, I try to format them to be 10 to 12 games. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, I try to format them so they kind of work in pairs. Yeah. Because we released the YouTube one and then one in the vault. Um, I, I want to, there's only been one time that was the orc death watch where I said, you know what? The entire thing, except for the first episode is going in the vault. And that way I don't have to worry about it. Although ironically, that one would have worked fine in pairs because it was you and quirk and basically you fought over which mission you got to do. And then there was a pair of missions. So it was originally designed to be that kind of format, but it would be nice to do one where I don't have to worry about the pairings. There's also something about like uh, when Miles writes a story, he has to write the story for two games at a time because we film two in a day. Now, that would still be the case. I wouldn't want to start just filming one game a day because that's a waste of resources. But there is something that's nice to know that we don't have to worry about which one's free, which one's in the vault. So either the solution to that is to put the whole thing out in the vault. I'm sorry, the solution is not to put the whole thing out for free. Just You don't make any money from that. I could put it in the vault and then months later put it out for free. That's, that's fine. But um, I want, we're going to be experimenting with that probably. But it does. It does affect. I think, how do I do this so it works in pairs? How do I... And, or things will happen like we finish 10 episodes and I'm ready for the finale. But I, I can't just make one episode. i got to make two episodes. And the one thing I don't want to do, because we've done it in the past and nobody ever likes when we do it, except fault members, <laughs> is taking the last episode and splitting it up into two parts. And, and I mean like literally you're watching half of a battle report and then the other half of the battle report. Not having two separate battle reports that's called part one and part two. That's happened... I'm not going to say a lot, but enough times it's sticking to my mind, like, where I can tell that episode 11 is a filler episode. Right. Like, the story's over. I got all the clues I needed. I, I have this, the story's been fully unfolded. The boss is right there, but first I have to walk through the gate. Right. Like, it's just, yeah. You, you, can, you can tell. And that's, and that's totally the truth. Um, when we were filming the Dragon Tooth Labyrinth, there was one day where we only managed to get one episode filled, filmed, and I'm like, great, because I wanted the last episode to be a big game, and that would take all day to film. And so now we just can continue, and we'll have an odd episode, and perfect. So that one actually worked out really well. But yeah, no, you can tell. You can tell when sometimes I'm like, oh, shoot, we need one more episode. But you know what? TV shows have to worry about that, too, right? Oh, there, you name one television show where there isn't a season with at least a couple of filler episodes. <laughs> or like... Most of the season is filler episodes. That happens sometimes too. <laughs> yeah, where it's like, here's our story, here's our story. Now we're going to spend four episodes on a tangent that doesn't really do anything for the story. I don't have. I actually like episodic TV shows that don't care about the overall story as I well. Like both. I, 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 they, they both serve their purpose. Um, I, I, I like episodic ones for just being able to sit down and watch. But that's like watching battle reports, right? You can watch narrative. Like the nothing but narrative show is like that. It's like the episodic. They don't really influence each other. But they still have that narrative to them, so they're fun. 
And then you got the longer ones there. So yeah, this is not a new problem. We have to, we're kind of a slave. Also, okay, another thing to consider is what armies are being shown. Um, and I usually allow the player to choose, but I also want something kind of relevant in mm -hmm. there. Like the Dragontooth Labyrinth, I've purposely made it Iron Jaws because the Auric War Clans had just come out. And that was to balance Luca doing corn, which aren't relevant at all right now. They haven't had an update for a very long time. And so I wanted to show some new stuff. Or like, you know Space Marines are going to do better. You just know it. I did the Space Marine Death Watch has always been our most popular campaigns. And I'm like, say. you know what would be really fun to do an Orc Death Watch? And people love the idea. I built up like crazy. I advertised it more than any other campaign. And people loved it, but it did not have the viewership that the other campaigns and you use some, I'll, I'll, I'll use the word throwaway, but that's not accurate. You use some throwaway Death Watch campaigns. Okay, actually rephrase that. Yeah. You've done some just um, less work Death Watch campaigns where you do less prep and you just do so so much better. So, so amazing. Yeah. yeah. And I think part of that is the Space Marine aspect to it. Space Marine or Death Watch? Because we've had, we had World Engine, Space Marines. That would we've be had, um, that would, Okay, we had the campaign with all the scouts and That Tyrus incident Tyrus, with Josh. Yep. Uh, that one did pretty well. Oh, Space Marines is just it then. Well, and I don't think we should be surprised by that. Well, yeah. Right? Because they're Space Marines. They're the Jedi of the Warhammer 40. Well, are you seeing the same thing? Yeah. Are you seeing the same thing in Age of Sigmar where uh, the Stormcast ones do better? Or are you seeing them about the same? I haven't done as many Age of Sigmar fair, ones. Fair point. But there was the Watchers and Death one. I love that one. <laughs> Which is, you want to know where the idea for that came from? <laughs> same. <laughs> You know, same. They're all I, black I picture, with silver light. I picture, I picture this meeting at the Games Workshop headquarters when they're deciding on how to fix Warhammer Fantasy, and they're like, "What sells? What? How is 40k outselling it?" Well, half of our sales are Space Marines. So, what do we do for Warhammer Fantasy, sir? I got an idea. Let's put Space Marines in Warhammer Fantasy. As like, you sir, get a raise. They're Thunder Warriors. <laughs> no, they're Stormcast Eternals, man. And they brought Space Marines into Warhammer Fantasy, yeah, now they Age of Sigmar. Yep. And yeah, they, they, they sell a lot, all right? They because did. they're super cool. What is it about them? I don't know. <laughs> no idea. Because I think Stormcast Eternals are actually very interesting. I find Space Marines a little dull, uh, except in certain novels. It depends on the author. They can do anything can be interesting with the right author. But, but Stormcast Eternals, their lore is actually really cool. I really like that. But that's not what we're here to talk about. But um, And so I thought, well, Stormcast Eternals are so popular because they've already got like three updates before certain codexes or Battle Tomes even got one update. Um, I'm like, our Death Watch campaigns have been the most popular for 40K. So I'm like, I wonder if I could figure out a way to do a Death Watch for Age of Sigmar. I'm like, we've already got the Stormcast Eternals. What do we call them? Watchers and Death. I'm like, yep, that's it. <laughs> it was not hard to come up with. I'm like, but what's their color scheme? Black? Why? Um, why, and then and with, a, with a silver arm. I'm like, well, why? It's because because uh, then I came up with a curse yeah. that turned their armor black, and then the silver arm is the curse finally manifesting and slowly taking over their body. <laughs> <laughs> and they're anti-death instead it, of anti-death. It should have been a bunch of uh, Stormcats just uh, all gathering on a tarmac somewhere. A few of them came out, painted their armor all black. Thanks. You should just stole the space Yeah, story. exactly. They, oh, you had that idea too. And then the rest will go do it. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good idea. <laughs> no, I, you know, obviously they're not like Death Watch in pretty much every other way, but they're just so obviously like, and that campaign did really well. <laughs> it's kind of frustrating. And I, I, you know what? We're nowhere near the status of like Hollywood, but I get Hollywood now. <laughs> I get it. I get why. Um, we haven't had an original why, idea in 10 years. <laughs> why, why Mr. Bay keeps coming up with more Transformers movies. Mr. I Bay. get it. I totally get it. And what and he may he maybe he's thinking too, he's like, dude, I've got way better ideas than this. But they make a lot of money. This is the so, one that's old. So this is what I gotta do. And you know what? A lot of directors probably feel that. And I know that a lot of them do. They're like, yes, I'll do this because it makes me money. And then I'm gonna go do my other projects that don't make as much so money. So now I, I, I think them. about all the movies we didn't get because somebody didn't think it was make as much money. And I'm thinking all the campaigns we didn't get because you didn't think it was gonna do as well as Watches and Death or Death Watch. Exactly. And I'm sorry, but that's how I, business has to run. I, yeah, that's this is part of doing it on YouTube, right? And and I find it's interesting because I've done Dungeons and Dragons both filmed and not filmed. And I, I, people have made the suggestion before. It's like, hey, just film your home group. And I'm like, no, 
No. Because I want a place where I can play a freaking game and not have to worry about monetizing okay, it. So, so, so I don't have to make the best miniatures, set up the best terrain. I can just throw down my mat and color on it with so, markers. Okay, my question to you on that one is not that I'm, I'm not advocating that. Like, I don't, I'm not saying I want to do that. But what would be the downside to actually just... Because I get up crap. all the time and go over and get food. So cool. That's part of the video. Yeah, and there's there, but there's cameras in the way, and you One gotta camera. have microphones and stuff. No, I'm, I'm talking about super low, super low budget, super. Oh, there's already a million of those out there, so who cares? Okay. If right. I'm gonna do that, I want to stand out because we do it well. I don't just want to be another guy who throws because I've seen a lot of those, and they're whatever. That's fun, but I don't just want to be another one that throws the camera up in their kitchen. Do you think? Um, so you played. So you played with your home group and in work campaigns, how different do you think it would be? Very. You think we, for those of us who work there and play there, we make different decisions to play differently, act differently? To a certain degree, yes. Okay. Yeah. And that's fine. We have a lot well, of... We're, 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 yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because we have to, you have to think differently when you're going to be on camera. So you guys have true. both advantages and disadvantages compared to us. You have the advantage of not caring about what anybody else thinks except you and your group. But you yeah. have the disadvantage of maybe of not having the resources that we have. Like we have a hallway full of miniatures and terrain. I've got people who are forced to do them with me. <laughs> and once they start, I, I, they got to show up and really do it. Not really forced. I could leave it at any time. Well, you know what I mean. <laughs> I don't have to worry about them leaving mid-campaign, typically. Whereas you might... You yeah, that's never happened, eh? Where you couldn't finish a campaign for whatever reason? No, I had one campaign where a guest wasn't able to finish it, but for good reasons. Uh, in Storms of Ixia, Andy yep. wasn't able to stay the whole time. But he, the orcs weren't the main... There was three main characters, so it kind of worked. I yeah. played a bit of the orcs just to kind of fill in for them. But um, it, it worked fine. Other than that, no. No, we've never had that problem. So, so yeah. So definitely there are differences... Uh, obviously, we like I said, we have the advantage because we're doing it for YouTube. We put more money into it, which means we can get cool terrain, cool models, because we have a reason for that. Whereas you have, it's a different scale of economy. Us spending a thousand dollars on terrain and miniatures is much easier than an individual spending a thousand dollars on terrain and miniatures. But you don't, if you're doing that in your store, or whatever, you don't need all all the terrain and miniatures we use. Obviously, nope. you just don't need it. Absolutely not. Like we would definitely not have the boards as fully detailed if we're just playing for fun. Probably not. Probably not. Although I do really enjoy a good-looking board. Um, I wouldn't be worried quite as much about certain aspects of it. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying, like, okay, uh, there are times we'll make a 6 by 4 board, knowing we're going to play on this this 4 by 4 we fill it up to make the table look good. Yeah, so that when you're shooting with yeah. the camera that you have that backdrop. Yeah, yeah, totally. No, I yeah. get that. And when you look at the Dungeons & Dragons, think about all the scenarios. Like, when I actually dropped miniatures down, I had terrain. I yeah. put on a board with terrain. Now, when we play at home... Draw I, I do dry, I dry erase, or I might print off a map if there's one available. You need certain things. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, but the dry erase works fine. I don't enjoy the train more than the plain grid with the black and blue marker. See, I think the train can bring a certain level of enjoyment to it, but it's just so unnecessary. Well, you know, we'll try. Let me rephrase that then. Um, the first couple of times when we did the mini wargaming Dungeons and Dragons campaigns, we had these really cool elaborate boards. What well, we had until the campaign. What I'm saying is the first few times, oh, it was really cool. We look at this terrain, you got levels, and this is beautiful. Um, by like the fourth fourth mission, fourth uh, fourth session, I didn't care anymore for that terrain than I did the, the flat grid. Right. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's all. Like, I just Exactly. And you're limited. We, we do it for the too. audience, and that's it. Yeah, now we're talking about D&D, but... You're limited when well, you're using terrain. We're talking about uh, for when you're doing this on YouTube, you, you make the uh, visuals a little bit more fluffed up yeah. than you need them to be. And I think that's for, for your For your players. And I know some people will say, no, 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 just set up your camera. That's what I want to watch. And that's fine. You might want to, but the general population is not going to want to. And that's what we have to think about. There will always be somebody interested in any idea I come up with. I'm, somebody in my audience yeah. will be like, I want to see that. But that's not the question. I'm not. The question isn't, will somebody want to see it? The question is, will a lot of people want to yeah. see it? And that's hard because uh, there's a lot of competition for your viewing time. And I don't just mean in this market. I just mean in general. Like we're competing against anybody who does anything entertaining whatsoever. You're off time. We're competing for your off time. Whether it's other movies, TV shows, other YouTubers, or other hobbies in general, they, they, that's, that's competing for your off time. And you have a limited amount of it. And so, yeah. So we have to make sure that we're maximizing on that, which is why... You know, some people complain, you only ever cover Games Workshop stuff. It's like, well, 
them's the most popular so we're kind of stuck with there with certain i enjoy the job we have to cover we have to cover the thing that brings money into the company yeah exactly exactly so yes definitely has an effect so that was the um the main topic for today and so uh we have a couple other things i want to cover how much time do we oh i forgot to turn the timer back on (laughs) i have no idea how long we've been recording for so whatever unfortunate technical issues yeah, do? yeah, yeah, whatever. These episodes are, you know, I'm not, this doesn't have to be a certain length. This isn't for TV, network TV with 42 minutes. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 44 minutes or whatever it is. I think it's 44 minutes to the hour, so they have 16 minutes of commercial breaks. Uh, speaking of commercial breaks, this episode brought to you in part by the Mini Wargaming Vault. And by part, I mean like 95% part because our vault members are awesome and they allow us to do this. If you want to support the show, be a vault member, please. Please. Because that is what allows us to do this for a living. And we're always needing more because we need to continue to want to grow what we do, to hire more people, to expand on everything we do. So if you want to support Mini Wargaming, the number one way to do that is be a mini, uh, to be a vault member. So there's my plug. Oh, and also Apocalypticon. <laughs> That's oh. coming up April 17th to 18th, 2020. If you want to join up to 39 other players for a big... Not as sweaty as past apocalyptic card games because our air conditioner actually works in this building. And it's also <laughs> April, so maybe we won't need it quite as much. Ha <laughs> ha, what am I saying? We will. We will. On full tilt. It'll be great, though. Um, then go check out miniwargaming.com slash challenge where we list our events there. And you'll see it on the list. Click on it for all the details. It's going to be awesome. It will be. It will be. And we're finally, yeah, we're finally able to bring it back, which I'm excited about. So let's review a scenario. Now, I know you didn't play the scenario, Steve, but that doesn't mean that you can't have yep. your thoughts on it. And uh, from a couple more vigilist scenarios. So I'm going to review one more today. And then next week's episode, I'll review another because I've played a couple more. And um, also this one, I happen to play Eldar. So you'll have some thoughts mm. and insights on that too because that was one of your first 40K armies. Yep. And then we'll maybe if we have time after that, which is an arbitrary thing because I have no idea how long we've been going, then uh, we'll answer a couple more questions. Uh, and then we'll see you next week for the next episode where we'll talk about reward and upgrade systems, I think. Or that or writing and adapting rules from existing sources. But we've kind of covered that a little bit. But not actually, no, we didn't because we're talking about rules. I think that'll be next week's. Writing and adapting rules from existing sources based on a question from Ellie Bennett. So we'll do that next week. So the mission that I want to review is from Vigilist Defiant. On page 207, it is called Hold Your Gains. The basic idea, if you're just listening, that you don't have any visual, and if you're watching, you don't have a visual either because I'm not going to show it to you, is that there's an attacker and a defender. A defender deploys up to a third of their army in the center, and they're trying to hold out until their transport arrives, essentially. The attacker starts on both sides of the table and on the short table edges, and the attacker gets first turn, And their job, basically, whoever has the most in the middle wins. So, gut instinct. Before you even know how the scenario went. Okay. So the defender has a third of their army in the middle. The attacker has their entire army on the table. And whoever has the most in the middle wins. So I'll say this. um, Give me some backstory. I'm not sure if you're aware. Um, There are... When Age of Sigmar first came out... it wasn't called first edition. I'm gonna call first edition. When it first came out, it had a bunch of campaign books, and it had a bunch of you mean the Round Gate Wars ones. Yeah, and the Godbees. There's a whole bunch of campaign books. Um, they had a bunch of these scenarios. I've played them all. Uh, I, I, I generally feel like these scenarios, unless they've changed in the recent books, I haven't really looked at the Avengers ones. To be very honest with you, they they are they are very poorly balanced mm-hmm. in my opinion uh, and you have to you have to have to um, play them incorrectly understand the scenario and then make your lists for them and then if you do they can be really really fun that is my opinion on Games Workshop's scenarios period like, so you're, talking, you're talking overarching yeah that's my now Now there's going to be obviously outliers where one's never going to work this is just great all the time but that's my general consensus of well, it's been, workshops. It's scenarios. been my experience so far that um, that's absolutely true. If you actually, I do have a living document on miniwargaming.com that I'll update as these episodes come out. 
If you go to Tools and Rules, you'll see the Wargaming Game Master reviews where I review them. And I review them based on how well they play as is. So, so far, with minor exceptions, we've had a lot of fun with all these narrative scenarios because we've made modifications. Interesting. And so when I, I give them a, a rating of up to five Dancing Matthews, <laughs> so anywhere from half a Dancing Matthew to five Dancing Matthews, so far, I don't know if any of them have gotten more than four. Most of them have gotten like three or three and a half. Even the ones that we Most. had super fun. Because my, my thing is, they get a better review if we had to change less things. So as is, these scenarios work. Because I think that's important. I think it's important that scenarios are written in a way that the majority of people, as long as they don't game them, because that's a different thing. That's always going to be, yeah. Yeah, if you know that your job is to get from one side to the other, and you're like, well, I know what I'll do. I'll bring all flyers. Yeah. It's like, well, you're just a jerkwad, and you shouldn't be well, playing that's, scenarios. Well, that's why I feel like you have to play them all, figure out the spirit of the scenario, and then make a list accordingly. Right, but by then you've already played them all, and that's going to be boring. You gotta, you got This is why it's important that they're written balanced to begin with. As long as the players understand the spirit of it, and they create the right lists, then, without any modifications, the scenario should work. And, and that's rarely been the case. Uh, and you've case. had one you rate a four dancing, dancing Matthew? I don't know if I... Did I end up having one? Hold or on. you have at least a 3.5. Well, Which I, one's I, a 3.5? I, I didn't rate any lower than three because they're just minor changes and then all of a sudden they work. Okay. So let me let me see if I can pull it up really quick. Working in Game Master Reviews. Uh, yeah, four... Convoy was a four out of five um, because... My only suggestion for it was how things deployed. Other than that, it worked fine. Okay. Uh, data recovery. That was a three and a half. Maybe I was being nice with a three and a half. It should have been a three because I had a few changes to it. And then in Forbidden Power, the, uh, both of the scenarios that I evaluated were both three out of five, Dancing Matthews. And I used those in the Dragontooth Labyrinth campaign, but I made changes to them because I saw as soon as I read them. Having the experience that I have in writing narrative missions, I was able to look at them and be like, no, that's not going to work. I also find the work uh, considerably better at a lower point level. Yeah. I think if you think you take... Okay, so which, which one do you have uh, with a low rating? It doesn't really matter. You have a scenario with a low rating, uh, you put it at 2,000 points. I bet you if you played it again at 500 or 1,000 points, the rating would go up. Maybe. Maybe it would work better because then there's less... It's more about small things happening rather than... Well, well there's, there's, there's... Yeah, there's always... Um, well, I'm trying to think of like Path to Glory weird scenarios that I've, I've played with people. Um, like this is this would be a ridiculous scenario, but for whatever reason, there's one unit able to pull through because there wasn't like seven more units to get in the way. Right. At smaller scale, these scenarios work better. If you know how everything, I'll hold, if you know the ins and outs of the scenario and you make your list accordingly, they work better. If you take two people with just two whatever lists, I'm going to bring my 2,000 point space marine list, I'm going to bring a 2,000 point tier new list, and we go to scenario to scenario to scenario. We'll find one, the Tyranids were ridiculously overpowered, then the Space Marines were ridiculously overpowered, and it's perfectly balanced, and the Tyranids are overpowered again. Like the scenarios just don't, um, they're not built, they're not, they're, they're not um, complementary to the way we currently make lists in the game. Right, exactly. But that's also, I think, intentional. Yeah, well, that's fine because the whole idea of narrative play is not to build, because match play has all these extra rules in it because it's more concerned about not. Your narrative of your army, but the balance of your army. See, I think Games Workshop. I, I don't want to like speak for somebody else or what I think, but I think they want to just give you less restrictions on things. Yes, so you can just play sure. your way. However, I feel that if you uh, gave more restrictions or more guidelines, you add another paragraph to all these scenarios, you're really going to help them. Yeah, and sometimes they do that. For example, and and this is the one thing. Hold your gains is an interesting one. So coming back to this one specifically. So we played, I don't want to give too many spoilers because um, this one hasn't gone out yet, but I played Eldar for the first time because mm. I was just getting tired of just doing Tyranids and Genes to their cult. I would love to just do Tyranids and Genes to their cult, I should say. All but, the time. <laughs> but I, I want there to be variety and nothing but narrative. And so I'm like, you know, I'm going to try Eldar because nobody really plays them. So I just kind of threw together a list and he played Space Wolves and one of us was a defender and one of us was the attacker. So I'm, I'm going to go generic now because mm. I don't want to give away which one. The person who was a defender lost horribly it, because their army comes on piecemeal, whereas the attacker's army starts on the table. Furthermore, no, that was actually it. I, th <laughs> I think, yeah, and the attacker has the first turn, always. And so for this one, a, a simple change, if I look at what happened, if all that was changed was the defender got to go first, 
And on top of that, oh, and by the way, the Defender, their other two-thirds of their army come in from reserve, not until the second battle round, and they have to roll. Mm. And so the attacker has just so many yeah, advantages there. You have you have to make a list that can play that. Right. And so you, you have a choice not to put anything on the table. It says up to a third. But then you're just letting the attacker take the middle. And now you have to... You're coming on piecemeal to take it back. Now you're coming on piecemeal to try to take out the attacker who's been able to get in position. Yeah, I don't, um, like, it. I don't like it. Yeah, exactly. And the, coming on is actually pretty good. They come on within 12 inches of the table edge, which is way better than... A lot of the other scenarios I've seen, the reserves come in on like six inches for, way far away from the objectives. This one's pretty good in that area. Um, but and there, there's some stratagems that make it interesting. You can have rapid reinforcements where you get automatically guys coming in. And in that scenario, the defender actually spent all of their CP just to bring in all their guys. They didn't want to roll. And I'm still saying they. It could have been me. just want to point that out. Um, and the attacker on top of that has a three command point strategy that lets them replace a unit that was destroyed. The attacker? Yeah. And uh, yeah, the attacker has you that too. Yeah, you have to build your lists for the scenario. But here's the thing. So I would make these changes. First off, defender goes first. To have a chance to kill some of the attacker. Mm-hmm. His attacker just hide it on of sight, which slows him down a little bit. Second off, their reinforcements start coming in turn one. If you want to roll for it, that's fine. I'm always on the fence about rolling for reinforcements. I would instead say they have to divide their army up into three parts. And you automatically? And one part has to start on the table, and then you choose which part comes in I, turn one, I, turn I, two. I get it. Uh, for balance, you just... Or, yeah, just you want them to come on at a certain time. But the idea of rolling the the... The tension, it just so much. It, yes. For a game, is better, but for balance, it's not. Right, and that's fine. That's fine, but the because it gets so one sided, that can kind of who cares about anything else? If it's one sided, it's not as fun. Let's just put it that way for both players, especially the loser. Often, often. I would also change it so the attacker only gets to put a certain portion of their forces on too. Why is the attacker all there? Like I get, sure, you can come up with all the reasons, but I can also come up with all the reasons why the defender's already all there. So the attacker has like have the less of the attacker on. Have them come on easier than a defender. That's fine. And have them even start with more on the table because then the defender gets to go first and it mitigates that. I think i change it even more or try a different way, make it even easier. I'd have the, uh, defend, I'd have the attacker go first always and have the defender's um, entire force on, but the attacker comes on piecemeal. Because now you have a tactical side of the attackers and to put uh, hide in certain angles over here. They're going to try to do as much damage as they can by minimizing their own damage. But if the defenders are already in the middle... Because remember, who, the person wins by having the most stuff in the middle. So if the entire well, defender's force is already in the middle, yep. then you've got a whole lot of work cut out for you. Right, but the thing about that is um, Warmer 40,000 is very much about how fast you kill things. If you're guaranteed the first turn and you minimize your um, your risk as the attacker to kill them... You're, they're, Assuming they're, you outrange them. Well, not 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 to range of line of sight too, right? We're, we're, there's a whole there's a whole table we gotta worry about, right? If the defender depl- uh, deploys first and the attacker is gonna deploy after, oh sorry, I have the defender deploy first, have the attacker deploy second and go first, but the attacker comes on in piecemeal, right? So they have to really do make the decisions, whatever. Why they have a big they, they, there's a castle to get through. There's definitely a few variations that we've already come up with that I think mostly will all work better. But here's the funny thing. Interesting. <laughs> after we were talking about it, me and my uh, my opponent were talking about this afterwards. Um, and we were having a good discussion about it. Um, and essentially, I went back and I read the first paragraph. And this is when I was like, oh, that would have also fixed it. Oh. Essentially, pretty much in all of these, they talk about who should be the attacker and who should be the defender. And they usually relate it to who has the higher power level. And in our case, they were both the same power level. But it does give you a good hint as to who's going to have the advantage in this scenario. Yes. And so it says, once the armies have been chosen, the players must decide who will be the attacker and who will be the defender. If the power level of one of the armies is a third or more higher, then the player whose army has the higher power level should be the defender. And if all we did was switch who was the attacker and defender, I am almost positive the game would have been perfect without making any other changes to the scenario. Interesting. Now, and because the attacker not only had all these advantages, but was also a more superior force. You, you think low-key they're saying, not power level, I'm air-quoting here for those who can't see, not power level within like the numbers, but like 
power Which level of the, of the factions. Exactly. Yeah. But they're they're talking just about power level. Like whoever has the most points should be the defender because then they come. But on these are the arbitrary thing, right? Like there's. But you often can know, it, especially once you get to know the game, you can look at it and see. And this is this. Oh, is the burden. The burden of balance is not on Games Workshop side. The burden of making a good scenario is, and that's not about balance so much as it is about creating a scenario where the players should be able to balance it with their lists. And so, and it, we also had the problem that one of the like the, me as the Eldar player, I just didn't know what would, would made a good or a bad list. So either my list was way too strong, or it was way too weak. Once again, being ambiguous here because I don't want to give spoilers. And that was the problem. I will say that. And just switching who is the attacker and defender, I look at that afterwards and I'm like, I am positive that switching those two forces and without any other changes to the scenario, it would have worked. So I'd have to give this one at least a four out of five, even though it was ironically the worst one I've ever played. I can't help but feel that was mostly my fault and my inexperience with the army. I'm going to show you something, because I don't want to give spoilers to the game. I don't know if that's relevant. You understand that, right? Yeah, but the other one was even worse. Absolutely. (laughs) No, no, absolutely. Okay, so... So I know what you're saying. Okay. And I know what you're saying. He was trying to say that the one army wasn't actually that strong, that one. And I'm saying, yeah, but the other army was even worse. Yeah. Which now I know. There's more, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the interesting thing. So I'm pretty sure that that would have fixed it. So there's that too. There's just kind of getting used to the fact that, see, now I'm going to start looking for that. If it does mention, because I always ignored that. I'm like, no, we're playing at the same points level. So who cares who has the higher power? Now I look at it and think, okay, so they're saying who has the advantage in this. So if I look at the list and think, okay, this guy's actually probably stronger, so let's have him be but the one there, that's There's more to it than that. Like, that's not, that's not going to be a perfect uh, workaround, a perfect fix. Like I said when we started this little topic, these snares work really well if you play them once first and then play them again. Right. I just don't want to they, they, I know. They just wait, they work well the second time around. You can use these in your campaigns. Oh, so you, now you, that I've, I've played this, yeah, I've learned how to write this type of hold the ground scenario and I'm like okay this is what I do yeah. now in a narrative campaign it's a little different when I'm a game master because I never put an entire army down I, that's one thing by the way pro tip <laughs> if you're the games master or game master sorry this, for some reason there's no S there put less than you think you, you need you, <laughs> you, you, you put down just a portion of what you think can take them because you can always add more and they don't know if you had planned to add more or didn't plan it doesn't matter you can always bring in more enemies one thing you can't do is have some enemies just turn around and be like you know what we're not needed here <laughs> We're going away. There, have, you ever, have you ever had to do that? Um, yep. No. Never? I've needed to do it, but I can't. And so I've, that's where I learned. It took me a few... You never had like a scaffolding fall on a group of cultists or something like that? <laughs> Whoops. I may have made poor decisions with some of them to help I know, balance I know. them. But no, once they're on the table, it becomes too obvious. And, and a player doesn't want to see the game master just give them gimmies, right? I know. They want to feel like they earned it. Even though the whole thing's manipulated, and they know that. They still want to feel like they've earned it, and they want to have that. Emotion. That is very true, and you said you nailed it right there. I know everything's going to be manipulated by you and controlled by you, but I want to feel like I, yeah, like I, I played it. it. Yeah, exactly. I earned it. I well, that's it. that's when we play D anD D. I'm manipulating everything. Yeah. I will artificially inflate the hit points of an enemy if you're killing it too fast. I will bring in more enemies if you're doing too well. I'll have some of the enemies not cast their best spells if you're doing poorly. That's all happening behind the screen. But the trick is to do it all in such a way that feels organic and natural. And the easiest way to do that is to not have the whole army on the table and bring in more as reinforcements as time goes on. So that's the pro tip. You versus the game master, but the game master also wants you to win. And, and you want the game master to try because you want to earn your win, but you versus the game master. Or is it not? The game master, <laughs> I would say, wants you to experience a good story. Right. Which sometimes requires you to lose. I agree. Because if you always win, then you lose if, that if, tension. If, if during a 12-episode campaign, if there's no episode where I'm like, oh, I wish I, that didn't go, I can't believe that guy got me, or I can't believe he died, or whatever. If that doesn't happen the whole campaign, it's probably not going to be that great for me. It's not You have to have the, the ups and downs, yeah. Yeah, you can't. You have to have the tension, right? Okay, that's all the time we have for today for this episode. Next week, we are going to be talking about a question sent in by Ellie Bennett, which has to do with writing and adapting rules from existing sources. It's not exactly the question that they asked, but um, essentially that's what prompted me wanting to talk about it was their, their comment, which talking about Necromunda and Aeronautica Imperialis in specific. And I'll be reviewing more scenarios and probably talking about more comments just based on how much time we have. So I hope that you enjoyed that. Please send your comments to, uh, to me. 
You can either, if you're watching this on YouTube or on Facebook, leave them there. I do read them all. I don't reply to them all, but I do read every single one. And if you are just watching this on a podcast or somewhere that you can't leave a comment, you can always email me, Matthew with two T's at miniwargaming.com. Once again, when I get those, I rarely reply to them, but I read them all. In fact, I've got some of them copied and pasted onto my notes right here so that I can cover them if needs be. So I do look at it all, and I do really appreciate the, the communication you send me, so please do so. And Steve, thank you for joining me on today's episode. Thank you. We'll see you guys next week on the next Wargaming Game Master. Happy Wargaming. <laughs>